Welcome to another episode of We Don't Die. I'm your host, Sandra Champlain, author of the international best-selling book called We Don't Die, A Skeptic's Discovery of Life After Death. Our guest today is August Goforth. August is a licensed psychotherapist in private practice in New York City, and he is also a spirit medium. He intentionally does not utilize his mediumistic abilities for psychotherapy sessions, nor does he work as a professional medium to give readings. Along with Timothy Gray, he currently sits in a physical mediumship circle. August is co-author of the book, The Risen, Dialogues of Love, Grief, and Survival Beyond Death. And he's also the author of The Risen, A Companion to Grief. His articles have been widely published. He has been interviewed on many radio shows and podcasts, including George Norrie's Coast to Coast AM. August is an accredited medium under the auspices of the American Society for Standards in Mediumship and Psychical Investigations, also known as the ASSMPI. His website is therisenbooks.com. August, go forth a warm, warm welcome to We Don't Die Radio. Thank you so much, Sandra. I'm really happy to be here. I'm happy to have you, too. I know we've corresponded a lot through Facebook, and now today is the day we actually get to talk. Yeah, finally. <laughs> I know. And we don't know each other. This is really the first time we're talking voice to voice. So um, I'm excited to hear about you and your story and um, meet you for the first time, along with the listeners. Let's get to it. Yeah, let's get to it. So you're, you're in New York City right now. And if you wouldn't mind just giving us some of your backstory of how, maybe who you are and um, growing up, were you interested in this kind of thing? And obviously you're a psychotherapist, but you know, how do you get involved with the whole afterlife thing? So if you don't mind taking the mic yeah. and sharing. Sure. So my question would be, how do you not get involved with it? Um, Amen, that <laughs> that pr pretty much everyone is to varying degrees of awareness and experience. Um, and it depends upon our culture and the times, whether people are open to it and have developed some kind of articulation of ways of talking about it. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah. And so... Um, there are cultures on the planet where they haven't wandered that far away from their understanding that the afterlife, or what is, we call the afterlife, is intersecting and interacting and interpenetrating our own life, that it's all about life, that there actually isn't any death, um, per se, that nothing ends. So you see in different cultures more of that and other cultures less of that and still other cultures none of that. But there seems to be a resurgence in at least the Western world of a greater interest um, with a lot of questions. But that's sort of my long-winded way of saying that people are aware of what we're calling the afterlife, but they may not be aware that they're aware or they may have um, been told that what they're experiencing is not real. And so a lot of our belief systems that either enable or disable these experiences come into play. And a lot of people are aware of their belief systems and a lot of people aren't aware of their belief systems that are dictating them to them what their experience will be like. So a lot of the work that people are probably, um, that you've met, that I've met, that are beginning to embark upon their exploration into these mysterious realms 
um, are coming up against some roadblocks, maybe about their belief systems and realizing that they have to change some of their beliefs or suspend some of their beliefs in any way in order to move forward in some way. Yeah, very true. So for me, um, both of my grandmothers were mediums. And in the culture that I grew up, I grew up in the Appalachian Mountains um, in the United States and very, very remote, hilly, mountainous area. Um, so kind of backwards, but also untouched by a lot of the outside world in many ways. So the words medium and mediumship and seance weren't really used, but people knew what these experiences were like, and they knew that my grandmothers had these abilities to um, see and hear things that other people apparently couldn't see or hear, and to get information that apparently other people couldn't get for whatever reason. And that was just a normal part of my upbringing. It wasn't really um, talked about in a way that was um, out of the ordinary from anything else. It was just part of life. My one grandfather was actually the town dowser, and his job was to find water for, I'm saying a town, it was really a very small, very, very small village of mm -hmm. two streets. So his his job was to find water for the farmers um, and and people maybe who were, were building little cabins out in the woods somewhere. And he used to, um, t when we were very small, as gra his grandchildren, he would sometimes take us on these expeditions and show us how to do it and what he was doing. And one day he actually took us out into a field and tested us. He blindfolded us and put buckets of water all over the field and each gave us our own little dowsing stick. And um, there were f about five or six of us all around the same age. And we all failed miserably. We just kicked over the water buckets and mm -hmm. none of us had the ability to do that. But still, so that's what I mean, where it's kind of the culture that I grew up in. There was um, a working, living awareness of the presence of um, things that we can't always see. Mm -hmm. And um, so the, the approach to what people would call death was also um, not, not at least my experience was, I noticed that grownups weren't treating it as a finality in any kind of way, that it was just um, that people were moving on, basically. Um, when I, people always want to, to know the story, so I'll just tell it anyway, that when I was, a, it was way before I was in school and I was walking, so I was probably three or four, I think four years old, where I um, jumped into a lake to imitate other older kids who were swimming in this lake. And I didn't know how to swim. I didn't know what swimming was. I didn't know what they were doing and why they were disappearing beneath the surface. So I wanted to see what it was about. So I wandered away from my um, family and jumped into there and uh, ended up drowning and was pulled out and resuscitated. And um, that was probably, I think, the first most greatest spiritual experience in my life. Uh, I was furious when they revived me. I had a really strong reaction of rage um, that I wanted to go back. And I was trying to, I actually broke free and ran back down the dock and tried to jump off again. And wow. then they were very concerned, like, that's a little beyond what we understand. But um, there were older people in the community who understood what was going on and intervened 
in a way and talked to my parents and said, he's okay. He just had an experience and he might tell us about it. He might not, but just leave him alone. Um, my parents were already familiar with this weird stuff um, that, like most children, I had experiences of what you would call imaginary friends. Mm -hmm. But my parents came to realize that they weren't imaginary. They were just part of this cultural understanding that I was interacting with people that they couldn't see or hear. And they gave me a lot of room for that. They didn't try to talk me out of it. They didn't. Um, I wasn't old enough to really have adult language to articulate it. So they didn't really press me for that. They just sort of followed the advice of older people around them because my parents were quite young when they had me and they just said, just leave him alone um, and let him have his experiences. And if he wants to talk about it, he will. And so I think it was in that environment of not being dissuaded or persuaded otherwise that my own, what you would call sensitivity or, or mediumship um, was allowed to thrive and grow and evolve. It wasn't until I got into the outside world when I went off to college that I realized that my experience was vastly different from the majority of kids my age showing up at college. And it took me quite a while to realize that my experience would be considered out of the norm. I thought everyone had these experiences. I thought my parents had these experiences too, because I would see people in spirit interacting with them. But, um, they weren't always, they didn't seem like they were always conscious about it until I drew their attention to it, that someone in spirit was trying to talk to them or someone in spirit was in the room. Um, I was able to to see these people quite often and hear them, but I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to be, as some people might have tried to, to tell me. Can I ask you, just from that four-year-old experience, do you remember as an adult what you experienced when you drowned? Oh, yeah. Um, every day I remember it. And um, that night is, uh, in my bedroom, I couldn't fall asleep. I was so excited about what had happened. And I kept replaying it over and over in my head. And I was um, experiencing so many mixed emotions that I wanted to, I wanted it again and i was so happy that it happened and i was upset and angry that i was prevented from um, completing whatever had been started so the the experience was it, it was um a very sandy lake so the waters are very brown and murky and it was a very sunny day and i remember i was just a very tiny kid and so i um didn't know how to swim and i sort of just started sinking towards the bottom and I was just at the right weight where I sort of floated between the bottom and the surface. And it was probably no more than seven or eight feet of water, which is a lot for a little kid. And, um, I could just remember seeing the sun come through and the sun just got brighter and brighter as if the clouds were opening up. And I opened up my mouth and I just inhaled water because I thought you're supposed to breathe. Mm -hmm. So I breathed in water and I felt my lungs fill up and it didn't hurt or anything. It just sort of felt like I thought, well, I feel like I have to poop or something. But mm -hmm. um, I just sank more to the bottom. And then I started hearing music, which I can never forget, but I don't know how to, to reproduce. Mm -hmm. And people's voices singing. Um, and laughing, 
it sounded like there was a party going on underwater somewhere. And then I was aware that there were people um, coming towards me and, and they seemed to be swimming too. And so I thought, well, these must be other kids. This is what they're doing. They're swimming underwater, but they weren't other kids. They were people that I didn't know. And they had just started, I had just started to feel some tactile sensations of these other people surrounding me and embracing me or about to embrace me when someone grabbed me by the hair and pulled me out of the water. And, um, but it was the emotional experience that stayed with me so deeply. And I continued to measure that emotional experience against other emotional experiences. So sometimes people thought I was a bit of a sad little kid. Um, because I seem to be longing for something, and it's that's what I was longing for. Wow! I just want to address that you have a kitty cat in the background called Fiona. That that's Fiona. Yes, <laughs> wants people to be know heard. Fiona. Yeah, <laughs> she wants to. Be, and it's interesting. I talked to a man whose son had a similar experience, um, and he drowned. He wanted to swim like everyone, the other kids, and you know, the father was with the older child and had had a lot of guilt about this. But when the boy was revived, he said that. Um, he was with the big face in the sun and how happy it was. And, you know, just giving his own experience about the love that was there and he wanted to go back. And Right. It was the expression on those people's faces that I can remember so vividly that I never saw before on people's faces and never saw again on people's faces. Their, their expression that they were emoting towards me and towards himself and towards each other was, is beyond my experience even now, you know, it was like beyond joy. Um, it was beyond the feelings of safety. It, it was just extraordinary. Um, and it made everything pale or seem very two dimensional mm -hmm. for a long time after that. And the people in spirit, who I was already very well acquainted with, I still hadn't made any kind of connection that these are the same people underwater that they were above water and stuff because they used to come to my bedroom every night. We lived in a really huge, old, old Victorian house that was pretty much deserted when my parents and I moved into it, and a lot of it was shut off, and I had this huge bedroom to myself and a big brass bed. And um, like all Victorian houses, there's always connecting doors. Every bedroom, every room had two doors that you could just sort of go in and out. And my connecting door was with my parents' bedroom. And my parents often would sort of yell at me through the door at night, like to pipe down in there because I was having such a good time with people in spirit. They were telling me jokes and we were laughing and we were singing. Um, they taught me to read. And um, it, it was a... I couldn't really um, make the connection between the drowning because I didn't think of it as drowning. I don't know what I thought of, of it as. But so it was kind of a seamless experience. And uh, it wasn't until I got into the outside world that I started noticing that, that this was not considered normal or even necessarily mentally well in some cases um, for people. Um, which was a surprise to me, kind of a shock to realize. I just assumed that everyone had this experience in their own way. And and as I started, I had a lot of, uh, it's a huge family eventually, and had a lot of cousins. And, and, and 
a lot of my cousins were psychically gifted in various ways and we used to talk about it and the things that we experienced and did and play in that kind of a way but um it seems like they all grew out of it and or grew away from it in some way but i never did which is great and i love hearing that you still remember it so many people that i've talked to uh, who've had near-death experiences can recall it like it was just yesterday and i remember somebody saying how can you duplicate you know a sound that human ears have never heard or a color that the human eyes have never seen Mm -hmm. and so you experience something very special Mm -hmm. and so growing up you went into college and eventually did you have this urge do you think to help people um all your life um I was described as a very giving child. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a sense of um, ownership that if other kids, I was considered a little strange because if if, um, in this huge house, we had this huge, my parents had made this huge playroom and we just had lots and lots of toys. So I, I have, I'm the oldest of eight. So I eventually I had seven brothers and sisters. So it was always a big party going on. And when other kids would come over and want to play, if they were really enjoying and loved a toy that I that we had, I would give it to them. Um, and because there were so many toys, my parents never really noticed. Only once in a while, like they just figured it got lost or something like that. But I c- continued to have that sort of um, non-ownership feeling or sensitivity where if I saw someone getting joy from some of the experience I wanted to, and I saw them being uplifted in some way, I wanted to be part of that uplifting. Um, it's sort of in the way that when I saw the faces of the spirit people coming towards me underwater, that they were inviting me to join them in their feeling of upliftedness. So I kind of understood the context of that. So when Perhaps that has a lot to do with um, people would just seem to naturally seek me out for comfort or guidance or counsel in some kind of a way. And um, I didn't feel a need to not respond, Mm -hmm. but I didn't go, I didn't decide I want to be this or I want to be a therapist or something. It sort of was decided for me in some kind of way. It was just up to me to respond to this calling or not. And um, that's, as I continue to respond to it, it was a very long process. I didn't, you know, I wasn't a therapist. I've, I've, I think I've lived the life of four or five people hmm. already. And because I explored so many different things, and there were so many different things that I wanted to do. And because I had such um, an incredibly rich life experience, uh, when it came time, and it's, this is all about timing or, or the word orchestration, a lot of people may hear and wonder what that means. Mm-hmm. This is, and, and when I say the word spirit, I'm kind of using it in a generic or general way. My um, personal language that I use is the word the risen, that I call these people the risen, as opposed to us, that we haven't risen yet. Um, that they orchestrated these books that they wanted me to facilitate um, them. They really wanted to write the books, but they also knew that I had, uh, I have, a, I'm one of those overeducated people where I have degrees in music and art and journalism and, and um, psychology and therapy. That I had such a background in different languages 
and understandings and philosophies um, when they discovered that Tim, who was my um, companion for a few years before he transitioned, and he was very much a Renaissance person, I would describe him as well, and when they discovered that we still had continued this relationship, um, they were fascinated and wanted to take advantage that he and I had this connection and see as an experiment in many ways what they could achieve with that. And so we were often running into producing or translating, I, I call it, like sort of transmitting the books to me through Tim um, from thousands and thousands of, of people I call the Risen. So it was, when I say that I don't use, utilize my abilities to give readings because there are lots and lots of people who have those wonderful abilities to do so and um, they're better equipped for it than me but there aren't a lot of people who have the kind of background that tim and i had or that i have that would enable the production of these the material from these books that would serve yet another purposes as well i think we all have our own paths and we can dabble in different things but um can you give us a, a visual of what it's like to be writing the risen are you in a trance-like state with a pen or you know um has tim transitioned is that how i'm understanding it yes okay yes so he he had um he was um an, an actor and an author and an editor in publishing here in new york city for many years um and we had only been together briefly when he had um um, contracted HIV, mm. which then went into AIDS in those days, things went very quickly. And so there was a lot of drama, private drama, really, that, that came out of that. But he ended up transitioning. Um, and I did not do well in my grief with that. I, I kind of just um, got worse rather than better from it. It was not a good experience for me. And um, But when things got better there were just all kinds of funny little things that happened that one day he actually um, manifested physically he, right here where I'm sitting actually in, in my apartment. And he just manifested very briefly on the bed next to me where I was sitting at my desk. And um, which shocked me. Mm -hmm. So people are very interested in, you know, the process you might call it of, of, whether you're giving readings or receiving readings or whatever it is, is in an altered state of consciousness or you're in trance. Um, so it's definitely not channeling. Um, because I'm fully aware and conscious, I would say it's more that I'm um, receiving transmissions and translating the vibration of those transmissions into language and the people in spirit when they're transmitting to me um, depending upon the nature of the material or the goals that they have are utilizing particular aspects of my learning or my memory um, where they can find the right language to pull out and give to me and then um, 
sometimes Tim engages with me and we sort of artfully put it together in some kind of a way. Uh, it helps the fact that I'm very wild, widely read in a lot of diverse subjects, including um, genetics and quantum physics, quantum mechanics, and, and things that do play a part of the information that the risen people want to convey. In terms of um, what it looks like, I think it just basically looks like I'm just sitting down and typing normally, but it can go on for hours. And when I stop typing, it continues. And there have been times when I've been woken up in the middle of the night and I have to either get up and sit down and record it or uh, um, try to figure out some way how I can retain it, which isn't always easy because a lot of the material is very dense. Uh, years ago, I had a roommate who was a professional hypnotist, mm -hmm. the kind that did stage work and made people do all kinds of interesting things on stage. Mm -hmm. That was his living. And so uh, he and I were quite good friends. And um, I wasn't really sharing anything about my spirituality or mediumship with him, but he was a very spiritual and very sensitive person. And he picked up on a lot of stuff being a hypnotist, you have to. So one day he just said, you know what, Could would it be okay if I hypnotized you or tried to hypnotize you? There's something going on with you that I don't understand. And I said, uh, I've never been hypnotized. I don't even know what that is, but sure. Mm -hmm. And so um, three hours later, he finally said, I, I give up. He said, either you're one of those very rare people that are incapable of being hypnotized or you're already in the state all the time. And that's my conclusion, too, that I'm basically in an, a, a trance state almost all the time. My closest friends can tell when I'm in it deeper, when I'm not. But for the most part, um, I would say compared to to what we would call a, a general um, way of being in the world, that I'm in this state almost most of the time. What I did notice, though, that when the second book was finally done, um, I noticed a radical change in my awareness of being in the world. And it reminded me very much of being pulled out of the water when I was drowning. And so I felt kind of a, a sense of grief that the book was done um, and I was being returned to normal life. And I didn't quite know what to do. It took me a few months to sort of figure out now what I do that the book is done. Mm -hmm. And how long is it since the second book has been done? Um, I would say since um, almost a year. It's been a year that it finally I was able to put the pen down. But the book itself took about six, almost seven years wow. to, tr to transmit. And that meant I was working on it daily. Besides, um, even on the subway rides that I'm taking back and forth to my office, it, I was being receiving transmitted information and constantly working on it 24-7 for all those years. The first book um, was even longer. It took almost eight years to to transmit because the people in spirit, there were, there were literally thousands and thousands and thousands of people in spirit involved in this. And that made it very complex. And they had to organize it in their own way. And there was just me here on the side, plus Tim sort of as a go-between. 
the second book um, flowed a lot quicker and a lot easier because I understood more of the process and I was able to take the reins much, much more and be part of the uh, more conscious part of the process as well. Could you talk about the books and what uh, a reader would find? I know there's probably a lot, but just give there us a little is, taste. Yeah. Um, the, the first book is called Dialogues of Love, Grief, and Survival Beyond Death because most of it is being, um, it's recording a dialogue going on between Tim and I in the present as we're discussing his experiences, my experiences, his life, my life. Um, things that he's learned, um, things that I've learned. So it's this this dialogue that I'm recording. It's a, a conversation. Um, and it, it touches on many, many, many subjects, um, not just aspects of transition um, or what it's like to be where he's at, but a lot of the finer, deeper aspects of what we would call science or art as it exists in where he exists or where he lives. And, and so the book is exploring a lot of ways of articulating that into language we here on, as terrestrial people might be able to understand. But it uses language, um, the English language, in a very different way. It's It's... One of the things that um, I've noticed is is modern people have really lost touch with what's called metaphysical language or spiritual language. People maybe two or three thousand years ago understood it succinctly, and um, we've lost touch with understanding what spiritual language is, that it conveys a certain kind of resonance or spiritual vibration. Um, so Tim kind of describes it in the second book as infrared or um, um, an ultrasound kind of vibration going on that you can't necessarily see or hear with your physical eyes or your physical ears, but you can see and hear with your spiritual ears and your spiritual eyes. And so the material in the book has been specifically orchestrated um, and devised to start stimulating those extra senses that are spiritual senses and so in in a word it's another way of saying sort of like there's a lot between the lines but people um can actually feel so the material in the book is meant to to uplift you and to stimulate your sense of vibration and to get you to to use your brain in a different way in a more holistic way and so it conveys a lot of information um it's very dense in that way. But um, for some people, um, it's very difficult for them to get very deep into it. What uh, there's sort of like um, a trigger alert for some people in these books where it basically says that you may notice that as you begin to read the following material that you might um, get very tired. And in fact, you might even fall asleep. Uh, you might even notice that after you're done reading it, you don't remember reading it or you have no idea what you just read. And what this is, is the material, the words, the language is starting to stimulate your inner spirit, which does understand it. But your physical 
apparatus is not vibrating at that rate and so it starts falling asleep and that's sort of putting you in it it's kind of a describing a trance situation so reading the material might actually put you into a, a, an altered state in some kind of way in both books what stood out for me um as a psychotherapist when the first book was done and talking a lot about it and in being interviewed was that the um the various teams of people in spirit who had helped orchestrate the material all seemed to focus on the aspect of grief which seemed to be a common thread that ran through the entire book and in very many ways sometimes very overtly sometimes very subtly but it's i realized that while grief is really um truly a commonality amongst all human beings on this planet that we're all going to go through grief of some kind and i knew that this wasn't a a, a coincidence or something it was intentional and and it seemed like they were starting the process in this book of approaching the subject of grief and exploring it and experimenting with it even in a different way. But because it's such a touchy subject or such an intense subject for people, they didn't really slam us over the head with it, but it was just kind of introducing. And of course, this is a, a subject that often comes up in my line of work as a psychotherapist, that there's all kinds of grief or assumptions of loss where people, I've noticed that people are coming more from um, an understanding of lack and limitation rather than an experience of prosperity and abundance. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, how can you achieve anything else but a, a sense of loss when someone you love so much seems to disappear from your very eyes and your very presence, like what good comes out of that? But as I said at the very beginning, it's my understanding that everyone on the planet has had some kind of grief experience in terms of the afterlife. And so we know a lot more than we think we know. And we've experienced a lot more than we realize we've experienced. But it can be helpful to actually hear about it. So people like hearing these stories, it can be really um, fulfilling and stimulating to read about it and um, to have some kind of, of external experience that unites the inner with the outer. So the second book attempts and does that, it actually expands upon the subject of grief um, in what might seem like a counterintuitive way that it uh, proposes that the energy of grief um, can be utilized in good ways. And that is actually the grief experience, whatever it is, is actually an opportunity to transform that energy. They, they cite that the scientific fact for us that Einstein said that energy can't be created or destroyed, but merely transformed into another form. They're saying grief is an energy that can be transformed into another form, or it can just be kind of re reiterated or retransformed back into what it was. And you can remain caught in grief for the rest mm -hmm. of your life. 
or you can use this grief experience as a kind of launching pad to change the vibration of it and it will lift you up away from the original devastation and into um, new and exciting places, kind of like when I drowned. You know, people would have seen, oh, this poor little boy fell and drowned, how horrible thing. And for me, it was a wonderful ecstatic thing that transformed me. Um, so I, I just love the way that it it uses a lot of interesting psychology to gently persuade us that we could, um, if we wanted to, use the energy of grief in a way that brings us closer to the people that we miss rather than further away from them. Mm, I love that. It was especially, I mean, one thing that I point out in, in the introduction in the book is that this book was written for me as well, that I'm not an expert on grief. Uh-huh. Um, there's no such thing as an expert on grief. Um, and that this book was written for me too, because I know that there are grief experiences um, coming my way that I don't want to have, that I dread. And But I don't want to dread them anymore. I want to be able to take fear out of the equation and see what happens. And so that's what this kind of transformation of grief energy is taking fear out of the equation and see what happens. And there's a transformation that goes beyond um, words that anyone who has undergone um, a deep grief experience that's been combined with some kind of communication from the person they thought was lost, whether it's an actual physical manifestation or it's a, an emotion or a mental thought or it's a song that appears on the radio. Um, there's information that lies within those experiences that conveys much more than than words could ever convey. So it has to be an experiential adventure for people as well, too, that you can't, it's my way of saying you can't just sit around and read books about it, but you have to have the experiences in some way as well. And people are going to have them regardless. Mm, I agree. Um, August, is it to read the first book first and then the companion to grief, or does it matter? If Well, I, I'm not sure. Um, I know that that people in spirit have recommended that the first book be read um, from beginning to end mm-hmm. and not flipping through it because it was um, devised or constructed to build slowly. Mm-hmm. There's no great loss in skipping through it, but because people tend to do that. And so they're saying just slow down and go from the beginning. In the second book, though, they say you can just flip through it and read in any any kind of way you want. I think they're both um, kind of seamless, that uh, there's enough information in either one that you can get away without reading the other, and it doesn't really matter at the end of the day um, which one you start with if you want to read both of them or not. I really enjoy, the, uh, I'll definitely pick them both up. But I like the thought that we don't have to totally understand it and it might tire us and all that. But all of us, I think, want to be able to connect more with the other world or unseen world, spirit world, the risen, whatever you want to call that. And Mm -hmm. by nature of reading these, it will help us energetically get there. I think that's 
Yeah, and what, pe what people are looking for, and you know this from your own work, is that people are looking, they want something to do. Um, they want something to read. They, they want to be told, like, do this, do that, do that. There's this, this um, we've moved beyond, and they've moved beyond what I call motivation. There's a difference between motivation where motivation always has an aspect of fear in it. Mm -hmm. Like if I if I don't get my um, self out of bed this morning, I won't get to work and I won't get a paycheck and and so forth. Or if, if I don't call this person, they're going to be mad at me. There's always some sort of fear in motivation and motivation can turn into the more desirable um, behavior or beneficial behavior, which we could call inspiration. The inspiration has no fear in it. So people are looking not, you know, maybe for motivation because they're afraid of death themselves or they're afraid that a loved one is going to die. Uh, I've been there. But they're also looking for inspiration, um, which is which is a behavior of beneficial, a benefit without fear involved in it. So there's a lot of inspirational energy especially in the second book, because it does give you things to do. Because um, a lot of people say, should I just, if I want to contact spirit, should I just sit here and let it happen? And um, yes, you could do that. Some people are, can do that and really good at it. But our 21st century minds um, have become so over-integrated with our technology, which can do things almost near perfectly and instantaneously, that we've lost the ability to wait for things to happen You're right. and, and people are over identified with technology and they think that they should be able to perform just as well and you no know, we're not technology we're nature we're clouds and cats and spirits and and trees and the wind and that uses time in a different way and spirit uses time in that way as well too so there are um it's useful to develop some kind of um what you could call a practice a spiritual practice, whether it's just five or 10 or 15 minutes of meditation, whatever that may be a day or reading something inspirational that uplifts you or having a conversation with someone that uplifts you or doing something that uplifts you. There are practices in the book on grief in the second book that are designed by people in spirit to uplift you. And and um, they're, they're actually just sort of just a, a taste of all the different ways because it encourages people to be creative um, to create their own practices, perhaps starting with one um, that they resonate with, but then to expand upon it and use that inspiration to um, bring their own creative aspects into practice. But the main, one of the main major um, themes of the book is that you have to practice if you want movement of some kind, if you want change, if you want transformation, it will only meet you halfway. It won't, the universe doesn't come and force us to do things, mm -hmm. but it will do anything that we want if we ask. And so that means we kind of have to do something to meet it halfway. And then the universe or God or the source or whatever you want to call it will meet us the rest of the way. In fact, we don't even have to go halfway. We just have to go a quarter of the way and then it will do everything else for us. And people in spirit get that and they know that. So it's learning how to become open um, without fear, fear, worry, grief, doubt, anxiety. Um, those are things that in this book are called the children of the dust because they tend to cloud our sensitivities and, and, and get in our eyes and our ears and we can't, we don't have a lot of clarity. So these practices are designed to 
teach us how to choose alternatives to those negative emotions. And in fact, negative emo- it turns out that negative emotions are really just po- positive emotions that are trying to unfold. But fear is keeping the positive information and the positive feeling from unfolding, and so it feels negative to us. So these practices also touch upon that idea about how to empower yourself to transform what seems like a negative experience by removing the resistance to it, which is fear, and letting it unfold into a positive experience, which is growth and expansion. I love how you just put that in the, that there are practices, because I had read a book once that was, God will work with you, but not for you. <laughs> and that sums it up. Just take the action. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. I- and it- and it can be hard doing that when we're paralyzed by a deep, deep grief experience. Um, uh, recently, I was speaking with someone. So I've I've been around the world presenting to, to different organizations in different countries. And one of my favorite places was Italy. And um, I went there with some people and we, we presented about physical mediumship and other kinds of mediumship um, to people in Italy who are interested in it and my Italian is not very good and where we were there was very little English being spoken so it was very interesting and someone had told me about they knew I was a therapist and they were very fascinated by the word depressed mm-hmm. and that when they first heard it they were learning English and they thought they were hearing the words deep rest oh. and and that really sums it up that when we're in this kind of deep grief situation, um, our bodies have evolved over millions and millions of years to know exactly what to do. And and the fact that we want to lie down and never give up, get up for a while is probably exactly what we should be doing. So a lot of these practices are very easy. They emphasize ease and rest and taking taking a little bit at a time and not trying to do it perfectly um, that you're not going to feel like dancing right away, no. if ever, but that it's sort of honoring your body's sensitivities and your body's wisdom. Again, 21st century people have lost a great deal of that ability to listen and to hear and listen to their body's wisdom as well. Mm-hmm. August, would you be willing to tell us a little bit about your physical medium circle and uh, what that's about? Before we conclude? Sure. Um, So physical mediumship is, has been around for quite a while. Um, You read about it in the, in a lot of ancient texts, including the Bible. Um, And different people have different experiences. And a lot of it is just spontaneous, kind of like when Tim materialized physically in my presence, um, which he continued to do so for several years after that until it got difficult. Um, there, in my particular circle, we call it an experimental circle because there are um, some physical mediumship circles that run a really tight ship in terms of process and procedure. Mm-hmm. And what to do, what not to do, and a lot of this has just to has, involves the safety of the medium as well. Because when you're dealing with some of these energies, um, a lot of, of um, care and preparation 
and rules and regulations have to be followed. It's just it's sort of wisdom that's learned over the years. So we do that in our group too. We sit in to total darkness um, just for an hour and we, we listen to some music that inspires us and raises us. And most people are looking for some kind of physical manifestation or phenomenon in their physical mediumship groups, whether it's the movement of objects or sounds happening or lights coming up. And I've experienced all those things in varying degrees and sometimes unbelievable degrees in, in various physical mediumship circles around the world. This experimental group um, allows us to, to stretch some of those approaches um, the the spirit uh, groups or teams if you want to call them um, it's taken about almost three years for them to get our space situated in a way um, I'll use the word psychically psychically that that will work for them and the majority of uh, many of these people on the other side again they number in the thousands mm -hmm. are scientists um or what would pass as the word scientists for us here it's very different there their technology if you want to call that is very different and so they're trying all kinds of different things and the people who sit in my circle we were sort of selected because of our ability um, um Two of us are psychotherapists. One has a background in um, all kinds of things that just make it very conducive to experimenting. And w in the beginning, we thought that we were going to get physical manifestations. That's, you know, we all want the thrill of physical things happening. Right. And we got it. We got it sort of just as a way to catch our attention where there were trumpets moving around. And um, we get a lot of of weird funny noises coming out of the walls and the ceiling and um it, but they were it wasn't until maybe a year later that we realized that all of this stuff was happening on the one side of the room and we were sitting on the other side of the room and what the people in spirit were doing where they were building a kind of structure that they eventually that was psychic a psychic structure i'll call it or an astral structure that they were going to move us into when it was ready and it took them over a year to get it ready and um so we called them the architects they were the spirit architects of this structure that they were building for us to sit in and it, when it was done it was clear to those of us who had clairvoyance that this was a cathedral it looked just like a cathedral and some of our guests who have come and sat were very clairvoyant and we would never say anything to them they say wow this you get the sense like we're sitting in a cathedral and it's just very very instant you know and so cathedrals in the medieval ages were very constructed with with um very intentional spiritual uh plans blueprints to uplift the people in them and this is the spirit teams, the architects version of a cathedral for us to sit in that would uplift us. Um, so a lot of the noises and sounds that we were hearing that were spontaneous, seemed to be spontaneously happening, were actually side effects of their construction, is the way that they put it, that it wasn't, they weren't trying to rap to us to spell out the alphabet or mm -hmm. something that we were just hearing a lot of the building going on but it but it still kept us enthralled and eventually that calmed down and um at this point then they instructed us to um 
bring a dome into the center of the circle. So we have this glass dome, which um, is part of that um, Robin Foy, mm -hmm. the physical mediumship and the skull group. So yes. I know I know Robin. So Robin was sort of working with us in this, and he was advising us, you know, what worked for them and what would work for us. And so we have this dome now sitting, which is like an, an, an energy field gatherer of some kind. And there are very specific kinds of um, mineral crystals that they insisted that we find. They said you have to find crystals that um, you find only in the area um, where you are. And we're saying, well, there's there's no crystals in New York yes, City. It <laughs> but it turns out that there's a, um, a county in New York State called Herkimer County, which is not far from us, which actually has they're called Herkimer diamonds and they're very rare and they are found only in this one County and they're the most purest of all quartz crystals. They're considered amplifiers. You use them with other crystals to oh. amplify the properties of those crystals. So they, so we had no idea, but we you know discovered this. Mm -hmm. So it's always been this experimental discovery process to see where it's going. And what we finally realized that we were having physical experiences ourselves, um, each time that we sat, there seemed to be um, definite um, steps that we were being taken through. And we could feel this, that our ears would start ringing very loudly at, at 10 minutes in. And then suddenly the room somehow would get darker. And then suddenly the room would suddenly get lighter. And then we would start seeing lights coming from one person um, or we would start getting very strange sensations around our heads and our faces, which could be ectoplasmic or, or photoplasmic sensations or not, or side effects of something. Um, we would experience intense headaches for several weeks. We all experienced intense shoulder pain, neck and shoulder pain, and sometimes nausea. Um, and spirit told us that we had to drink a lot more water. So we were bringing a lot more water into the sessions. So the long story short is that rather than these experimental, um, scientists trying to bring themselves forward into our space that they wanted to bring us forward into their space in some way as an experiment, um, or in other words, some kind of a portal. But instead of them coming through the portal, which is very difficult, apparently it's easier for to bring us through the portal. Amazing. And, and um, this idea was first introduced to me at a physical mediumship in France many years ago, where the, the spirit in charge, his name is John Sloan, said we've discovered this portal, um, we've asked, they asked me specifically to go to France because they wanted to show me this portal. And they said, we're just going to bring you. And they also brought Shannon Taggart, the photographer, mm -hmm. through the portal. And we both had this going through the spirit portal experience. Um, and that was, that was really quite amazing. And it, we didn't go very far and, and we didn't really experience anything. But the person who was sitting next to me at that particular sitting, um, was kind of new to the phenomenon and she was a little scared and she had reached over to kind of grab my hands during the sitting and discovered that I was gone. Oh my that I was gosh. missing 
from but i didn't know i was gone i thought i was still sitting there listening and hearing everything i just couldn't see what everyone was right. saying that they were seeing. and 20 minutes later i was back she never told anyone about this for almost a year because she thought that it meant that she had discovered i must be up doing fraud or something like yes. that and so that was my first experience of being brought through a portal and it was very brief so that's what our experimental group seems to be doing now and a lot of it involves um, making um, at first we were saying they're making changes or I was interpreting what I was hearing that they're making changes in our DNA in some kind of way to enable um, our bodies and our spiritual sensitives, sensitivities to experience these things um, and it was only until recently that I was doing more reading on the subject of what's called epigenetics. Mm -hmm. And so that it seems to be more of an epigenetic experience where they're not changing our DNA so much as they're switching some things on and switching some other things off so that we would have different experiences. And so that allows us to absorb different kinds of information and not absorb other kinds of information. And where this is all heading, we have no idea exactly. That's okay. I think it's yeah. great. And I'm I'm fascinated by the world of physical mediumship and it's so controversial and it's nothing you can watch a YouTube video and get the reality of it unless you sit yourself. And in the future, I would really love to encourage people to start home circles and have that love of spirit and be willing to investigate and have yeah. those teams on the other side participate with you. And we'll get into more of that as the years go on, but I'm fascinated. And so thank you for all that you do. And I have a question for you. Between being a psychotherapist, a medium, um, co-author of the books, do you have, or what would be your one word of advice or one, not necessarily word, but a statement of advice for us souls living this human experience, uh, maybe to give us hope that there's something bigger than this? Um, Chill out. Chill out. Say more about that. That's great. Don't be so serious. It's obvious to me that the universe is built upon some kind of structure of humor, of good feelings, of laughter, of joy. And that's all there is. We have the freedom to flow in that direction or we can pinch it off. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we just get so serious about these things and we really need to lighten up. And that is what I've noticed in every single um, physical mediumship circle worth its, worth its spiritual gold is that the people who are either afraid or serious or preoccupied with um, negative feelings have very poor experiences mm -hmm. and those who are happy and laughing as if they're on a picnic and um, sacrilegious and um, laughing in the face of death have the best experiences that it just allows that experience to flow um, so easily. I love it. Chill out. Well, August, thank you for being our guest today. You're so welcome. And your website is therisenbooks.com. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to ask you to explain this because you're going to be the only episode that doesn't have a picture of yourself. And you want to just explain that? Well, so um, 
my my I have a very thriving psychotherapy practice here in New York, and um, that that's my first priority are my patients, and they come before me. So my practice, like they're not coming to me because I'm a medium and I don't want them to. Um, that the majority of people, ref- the majority of my patients reflect the majority of people is that they're either um, unaware of of life beyond life mm-hmm. or afraid to think about it and, and things like that. And that might be part of our work together, but that's that's not the impetus. And so it's not about me, it's about them. And if if um, so this is my way of um, protecting them in that way that they don't need to know that I'm a, um, a, a spirit medium. It just wouldn't work if I were to tell, you know, a patient coming in who's heard about me and wants to see me. And I say, well, you know, by the way, I see dead people. Right. I it's, get it. It's, yeah. Yeah. And, and so spirit has been very, um, uh, very profoundly good at maintaining my privacy and confidentiality in in terms of that so it's sort of like living you know two separate lives Mm -hmm. but they're integrated all the same because Mm -hmm. even though i may not actively use mediumship um in in my therapy it's still being used in some kind of way my sense of um spirit in a lot of my patients a couple of them actually figured out that i was a medium because it turns out that they're mediums themselves Mm -hmm. and so that relationship goes in that kind of a way but um it, it, I, I, it's just, it's not the publicity that I'm looking for. Like, I don't want to be famous as a medium or famous at all. That I love my work so much that I, do, I don't want it to be um, compromised in any kind of a way. So um, keeping me out of the picture, as it were, helps me do that. I completely get it, and I honor that. And I think that's good advice for all of us because we're all on our own spiritual journey and this is not stuff that you need to push on other people. There might be people that ask questions and, you know, somebody Mm -hmm. loses a loved one, you might say, okay, there's this great book here. Um, you know, that sort of thing, but exactly. Yeah. We don't need to shout it from the rooftops. It took a long time before I could come out, so to speak to my, you know, my day job with, this is what I'm doing. And, you know, you don't have to. So I think that's really good advice for, for all. So, August, thank you. Oh, you want to say something else? Well, I was going to say that that um, I have um, partnered with some organizations like Forever Family Foundation um, who they certify mediums, mm-hmm. um, one of the few places on the planet that does. And they're, they're just such a good organization, the Forever Family Foundation. We'll have a link to this, or there already is, if you're listening to this on iTunes or YouTube, for both um, therisenbooks.com and the and Forever Family Foundation. So thank you for sharing them. And August, thank you for sharing yourself and your story, and Tim and the Risen so generously. Uh, it was great fun. Um, I love talking with you. You're really good at this. <laughs> Thanks. It goes by really fast. I know. I know. Yeah. So um, I'd like to do it again. So I'm always always available i'm um hoping to get back onto coast to coast yeah again at some point as well too and there are other things in the fire as well another another book yeah in that and also i'll read your books and then we can have you back on and for our listener 
Thank you for spending this last hour with August and myself. As a reminder, his website is therisenbooks.com, and they just sound so wonderful. Our home base for the show is wedontdieradio.com, and I'm very excited to announce that we're going to have our first We Don't Die conferences. Now, the exact places are yet to be decided. I do believe they're going to be on the East Coast of the United States, but if you want to mark your calendar for either February 21st through 24th, 2019, or March 28th through 31st. And we're in the very beginning stages, um, but it'll be a conference all about life after death and helping you through life and grief and all those good things. So please, if you're not already, join our, um, I call it our Insiders Club. It's actually my email list, but it's at wedontdieradio.com. And also I offer my free audio called How to Survive Grief, my PDF file of 19 Reasons to Believe in the Afterlife, and several chapters from my book, We Don't Die. So in closing, my name is Sandra Champlain, and I'm always delighted to be your host on We Don't Die Radio. And I do believe that life is an education for the soul and that your life here on earth is important. And in the words of our wonderful guest, chill out. It doesn't have to be so serious. Uh, Find the joy. Know that you are supported by individuals in the flesh and also in the risen. So I want to thank you for listening and we'll see you soon. (music) 